Good morning. Good morning on this beautiful, almost perfect San Francisco day. This is not a sermon about the environment. This is a sermon about you. This is a sermon about the kind of tshuva, the kind of change whose time has come. Whose time has come, which we as individuals and a community cannot ignore. When this beautiful and sacred congregation first gathered here together on Yom Kippur in 1924, all of the windows in this sanctuary were like those at the very back of the balcony. Take a look. Covered in dark wooden latticework. That's how it was imagined in 1924. But it was not until 40 years later that the plain windows in wood were replaced with these magnificent stained glass windows that are now world famous and the centerpiece of our sanctuary. Interesting historical fact, the first artist that was commissioned to do these windows was named Marc Chagall. However, he was in his 90s at that time, and according to legend, his wife did not want him to leave Paris for the job. So instead, we had the incredible artist Mark Adams designed these gorgeous windows with 2,000 pieces of glass in 200 colors. Every single piece of the glass came over on a boat from Europe. It's no coincidence that our windows reflect the intense Unatana Tokev prayer that we all pray together over and over again on these holiest of days. Who shall live and who shall die? Who by fire and who by water? It connects us not only with a theme of Yom Kippur and our own mortality each time we sit in this sanctuary, but a visual reminder of our connection to, our love of, and dependence on the natural world. As San Franciscans, we are well aware of how important our natural resources are. People in this country look to us to take the lead into the next green centuries. The Green Nobel Prize, otherwise known as the Goldman Environmental Prize, founded by our members of blessed memory, Richard and Rhoda Goldman, is in its 30th year of lifting up the environmental change makers and warriors on every continent. And when this country withdrew from the Paris Climate Agreement, it was our governor who held the Global Climate Action Summit here just last week. I have to quote Michael Bloomberg when he was beset by environmental activists. He said, only in the United States of America could environmental activists be protesting an environmental conference? And I say, thank God for the activists and thank God for the conference. We need both. Ten years ago in 2008, I brought a beehive up on this bima in Rosh Hashanah to preach about something called colony collapse disorder, or what was decimating the bee colonies all around the world, and how I felt it mirrored what was happening to our own colonies. The United States had experienced a loss from 6 million hives in 1947 to 2.4 million hives in 2008. It was a 60% reduction. And I remember quoting Albert Einstein saying, if the bee disappears off the face of the earth, humanity will have four years left to survive. It was a charge for us to change the way we live on this planet before I didn't know 10 years ago what that before was, but I felt that the bee situation was a portal into the future. If I had stood on this bima in 2008 and told you that in less than 10 years our beloved Camp Newman would be destroyed by wildfires, 
If I told you that everyone, including the Holocaust surviving Torah from Vodnani, Czechoslovakia, would be evacuated from Camp Tawanga as the smoke from the massive fires surrounded Yosemite National Park and routed them down the mountain, that my own neighbor would die of heat stroke in her West Portal home last summer when the temperatures rose to over 106 degrees in San Francisco, that between 2017 and 2018, 15 million acres of our precious California land would be burned and destroyed, that Donald Trump, who would become President of the United States, would declare California a state of emergency, Hurricane Maria would devastate Puerto Rico, killing 3,000 of its citizens, leaving them without access to electricity, to food or water for years to come and Tropical Storm Florence would wreak havoc on the Carolinas. I don't think you would have believed me. Talk about a bad prophet. Last night before Yom Kippur, I drank a glass of this beautiful, pure, clear water from our own Hetch Hetchy Reservoir, which traveled 160 miles via gravity from Yosemite right to my faucet. I took a moment as it poured into my glass to marvel at the abundance that still exists and the privilege we have to drink and swim and shower and live in the midst of clean water. Last week, 700 of us stood at the edge of the Pacific Ocean at Baker Beach for Tashlich, where we released ourselves from the old and welcomed in the new. As I looked out at the horizon from Baker Beach on that perfect day, I suddenly remembered the bees and I wondered who and where will I be 10 years from now in 2028? And what will the rabbi and this bima be preaching about on that Yom Kippur? Last summer in Alaska, I decided to finally hike to the Mendenhall Glacier, a 13-mile-long river of ice. Since 1929, the glacier has retreated almost two miles, and it took hours to walk from the 1911 marker to the 2017 reality of the glacier that is literally a shadow of its former, former self. But still, standing there with water this color dripping off of every place in the glacier, I was beset by Yerat Hashem, radical amazement at how incredible and powerful nature truly is. It was a strange coincidence because the next day we flew home to San Francisco and the film made by our very courageous congregants, who themselves are environmental warriors, Bonnie Cohn and John Shank, an inconvenient sequel, Truth to Power, just as Rabbi Rodich referred to the prophet Isaiah, it opened the Jewish film festivals. And 10 years after the movie An Inconvenient Truth came out, I shook former Vice President Al Gore's hand and I said, do you think people are starting to understand what you mean? Last week, I saw the documentary film Survivors. You must see it. It chronicles the devastating impact of the Ebola virus in Sierra Leone in 2014, which lasted almost two years and took the lives of almost 29,000 West Africans. The reality of life in a region where lack of access to clean water and soap was almost unreal to me, given that we live on the same small planet, and the image that seared into my mind is that of young children in Sierra Leone walking across seemingly endless mounds of garbage to get to the edge of the water. 
And when these small children jumped into the water, my Jewish maternal heart began to race because the water they jumped into was this color. And as they swim in it and drink it, they were literally pushing away the filth and the garbage that had filled their water. But it was their only water. It's strange to think in a world where we have come so far, technology can only take us to some edges. Today, more people have a mobile phone than a toilet. This is not a sermon about the environment. This is a sermon about facing ourselves now so we can face a future together. Our tradition hands us the dichotomy of our relationship in the world from the very beginning in the story of Genesis. We're told we're supposed to till it and tend it, and we're also supposed to have dominion over it. It's a strange tension we've been struggling with since 5,779 years ago. Take care of it or take it over. And the book of Leviticus teaches us that we don't own the land. No matter what your deed or your title, no matter how many property taxes you may pay, God says the land shall not be sold in perpetuity. The land is mine and you are strangers and sojourners on it. Just for a brief moment. So what do you think has made it so difficult for us to partner with our future selves and our future planet? As the poet Mary Oliver asks, what will you do with your one wild and precious life? When you're asked, what action did you take? What changes did you make? What are you gonna be able to say? In this month's Atlantic Magazine, Ben Yagoda wrote an article called Your Lying Mind, which focuses on cognitive biases common to us all. There are many, many biases. There's actually one which is a bias the tendency for people to place a disproportionately high value on objects that they partly assembled themselves. It's called the IKEA effect bias. <laughs> but one of the most prevalent is called present bias, which is our inability to picture ourselves, our children, or our world in the future. This bias inhibits our ability to make changes or choices based on that inevitable future. But it's 2018. And software has been developed that allows people to see photos of themselves as avatars in the future. Research done at UCLA with this new technology was used to prove that people who can picture themselves and actually see a picture of themselves or their children at 70 years of age will change their saving and spending behavior and are no longer estranged from that future self. It turns out that being able to visualize an older you makes you able to change your behavior. And what's also fascinating is the Stanford Virtual Human Interaction Lab has developed similar virtual reality technology for the planet, where you can actually become coral in a virtual reality module and feel what it feels like for climate change to impact you under the sea. So I'm gonna ask you to do something. Close your eyes and take a moment, however old you are, visualize yourself in 10 years, or in 20 years. At the same time, picture your children or your grandchildren in 20 years. What do you look like? Where are you? And where are they? Now imagine if 20 years ago, you had seen a picture of yourself today. Would you have made any changes based on what you saw? Would you have eaten better? Spent more time with your family? saved more money, spent more money, gone to therapy a little bit more, retired earlier, stopped your addictive behavior, 
or moved somewhere? What would you have changed 20 years ago if you were able to partner with the person who is sitting in your seat this morning? What would you have changed and what will you change? You can open your eyes. Yuval Harari, the Israeli author of Homo Sapiens, in his most recent book, 21 Solutions for the 21st Century, reminds us that time is accelerating. He says the long term may no longer be defined in centuries or millenniums, but in terms of 20 years. It's the first time in history when we'll have no idea what human society will be like in two decades. He said we're in an unprecedented situation in history in the sense that nobody knows what the basics about will be in a world in up to 20 years. Not the basics just of geopolitics, but what the job market will look like, the skills that people will need, what family structures will look like, what even gender relations will be. And this means, he said, for the first time in history, we have no idea what to teach in schools. Our rabbi emeritus, Stephen Pierce, once shared a joke with me that deals with the fear that many of us have about the unknown future where robots and computers will be taking away almost all human jobs. Now remember, it's a joke from 20 years ago, but like most rabbinic wisdom, it remains eternal. <laughs> a rabbi noticed that each week, it seemed that she recognized less people in synagogue, and then over time, fewer and fewer were showing up at Shabbat morning services. So she inquired about what was going on with one of her congregants. A congregant finally admitted that other congregants had started to hire people to come and record the sermon on Saturday morning so that they could play golf or go bicycling. And then they realized they didn't really need to hire a person. All they'd have to do is put a recording device in the sanctuary, and they wouldn't even need to show up on Shabbat morning or pay somebody else to hear the rabbi's sermon, but they could hear it later and, you know, tell the rabbi how great it was. The rabbi was extremely dismayed when she realized it was the first case of artificial insermination. <laughs> Thank you, Rabbi Pierce. After reading Yuval Harari's predictions about the impact of technology and artificial intelligence, I do have to admit that before the service, I had a conversation with our president, Don Friend, who assured me that all of us will still be here on the Bema. We are going to have human rabbis and cantors, and the board will not be hiring any rabbots until 2020. <laughs> Yuval Harari also talks about morality and how it has to be redefined in such a complex, interconnected world. He says, we can no longer see ourselves as individuals, our cities, even our countries, as independent of anything ever again, ecologically, militarily, economically. He said, we are more and more interdependent. We know that that's true. He said, to act well, it's not enough to have good values. You have to understand the chains of causes and effects. He said, for example, stealing has become so complicated in our world. Back in biblical times, if you were stealing, you were aware of your actions and the consequences of your actions on your victim. But theft today could entail investing. Even unwittingly in a very profitable but unethical corporation that damages the environment and employs an army of lawyers and lobbyists to protect itself from regulations and lawsuits. Am I guilty of stealing a river, he asks? Even if I'm aware, I don't know how the corporation even makes its money. It will take me months, even years, to find out what my money is doing. And during that time, I'd be so guilty of so many crimes, which I actually know nothing about. I'm sure his prophetic words represent how many of us feel 
in the 21st century, not only bewildered in the face of progress, but uncertain of our responsibility to act morally and ethically and how our Jewish values will ultimately guide us. This is really not an environmental sermon. It's a sermon about the places in each of us that are still asleep, that didn't wake up in the shofar blew, still in denial, waiting for something to happen. God only knows what that might be before we're forced to change. Those shofars blast in 5779 invite us to envision and work on a different future. Can we? Will you? The Jewish answer is yes. Jews have had to respond and adjust to modernity over and over and over just to survive in the last 4,000 years. We are a combination ancient modern story of a tribe that makes up two-tenths of a percent of the entire global population who's continued to survive, to thrive, and to be leaders. Most people that live around a lot of Jews, I've noticed when you tell them that the Jewish population is only two-tenths of one percent of the entire population of the world cannot believe it. And I think it's become a reality that people assume that Jews are going to be saturating places where we can impact change. Radical change has actually been a catalyst for our flourishing, and so I pray that it continues to catalyze us to respond with the words of our ancestors when they are called, whether it's from God or a crisis, and they say, Hineni, that we are ready and we are changing. And I want you to just look for a moment at our fire, who by fire, and who by water. And I have a very special relationship to that window because 21 years ago when I came here as a rabbi, I was in my first year and one of the congregants said to me, if anybody ever gives you a hard time for being the first gay rabbi here, just tell them we've been waiting for you for 40 years. We put a rainbow flag up, didn't we? So every time I walked by that window, I felt, remember this was 21 years ago, I felt very welcomed. But that rainbow was not for me. That rainbow is for us. Because lest we forget, that rainbow is the symbol that God gave after the destruction of the world by flood, never to destroy the world again. And let us not forget that God's not doing it on God's own, that we are there too, whether it survives or is destroyed. Those words we said, the Unatanatokhef, do not end up with the who shall die, who shall live, who by fire, and who by water. It would be a hopeless way to begin the new year. Instead, Jewish tradition gives us the roadmap with an expectation and obligation to change the three ways to adapt in every single generation. Does it work? It works, of course. How do I know it works? Well, because you're all still here. The tshuva is the first one, answering the tekiah gadola with all of our breath and saying, this year I'm going to change. Tefillah, introspection, reflection, and action, and finally tzedakah, choosing to utilize whatever resources we have to benefit every single human being on this planet, not just ourselves and not just our loved ones. Why should anybody, anybody's children, be forced to live in a place where that is what they drink, and that is what they play in. If those were your children, you'd want your preacher talking about it all the time, I guarantee you. None of us need software to feel our 10-year-old or our 20-year-old or even the 80-year-old that is upon us. The great prophet and poet, one of my favorites, Leonard Cohn, was so moved by the words of the Unatana Tokef prayer that he wrote his own. 
based on the awesomeness of this day. As Cantor Lux shares the power of his song with us, take some minutes, look at the fire, look at the water, and look at the promise embedded in that glass. These windows are a portal, a portal to the past and the future. They're a reflection of who we will be individually and as a community. And they are a reminder, seriously, of what we risk losing if we don't make some serious changes. Remember, this was not a sermon about the environment. This is a sermon about you. May we all, Yoshve Tevel, all of the inhabitants of our world, be inscribed this year, this decade, and next for a good and long life. Amen. Oh.